Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? Yeah, this is Uncle Francis's Vine Cellar. You know, the podcast we break down films of Francis Ford Coppola and we cut off the heads one by one. We cut the heads off, you know? And then this is our Cage Club Network production. So that was my wild and wacky Van Helsing impression from this episode. I thought I thought Charlie Bluthorn was back. Uh- <laughs> oh my gosh. Dude, do you think Coppola told Anthony Hopkins to study Ooh. Charlie Bluthorn for his Van Helsing? Or do you think there was something in there? Because you're right. You just nailed it for me. That's the impression. I like that's it. A re- that's a really good point. And do you think, uh, what's his name, Byrne Gorman, the actor who played, this is where getting real, like, mind <laughs> screw here. But played Charlie? Act- yeah, the actor who played Charlie was like, oh, you know, let, let me copy Anthony Hopkins' Van Helsing. <laughs> I think he'd make a cool Van Helsing, a different interesting take on a Van Helsing. But th- th- thank you, Lord Van Helsing, for gracing our <laughs> presence today. And you're not the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing either. But Bonacera, have a seat, <laughs> have a glass, and welcome to Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. I'm Brian Rodriguez, but where's Michael? We're not starting the podcast without Michael. Oh, it's Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing. Oh, how's it going, dear? My, my terrible Australian accent. <laughs> you did not use that on your show, Third Time's a Charm, when we talked The Howling Three, The Marsupials. No, so I'm surprised. no because <laughs> I thought it might be a little insensitive to go too far <laughs> with a bad Australian accent these days, so I skipped it. <laughs> well, Mike Manzi, you're here. I'm here. Brian Rodriguez, as I said. We're here to... Wish you all a happy Halloween and welcome you to episode two of our Bram Stoker's Dracula, I don't know, two-part episode series for Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. Dan Cologne, he's Mm -hmm. here, of course. You're here. I'm here. This is just a conclusion of that first episode we recorded on the same night. And I'm telling you this because I was drinking a bottle of wine, and I drank the whole bottle of wine myself, and I didn't even realize it. So apologies <laughs> for the, the tipsiness. I would very much suggest you listen to part one before part two for obvious reasons. Oh, but... yeah. Like, what maniac wouldn't? <laughs> like, who watched Kill Bill 2 before Kill Well, I guess that one doesn't matter. That's a bad example. Um, who watched Cannonball Run 2 before yes, Cannonball Run? <laughs> Why is Dean Martin here? Well, you should have watched the first one. <laughs> and if for whatever reason you are that kind of maniac, well, you should listen to episode one. And you can check that out wherever you get your podcast, wherever you're listening right now. Google Podcasts, yeah. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. And remember, Mike, keep your friends close and your podcast closer. Ooh, I got a nail what that actually was last time. <laughs> but keep your keep your podcast close but your enemies closer <laughs> whatever it is please give us a positive review five star rating hit the subscribe button tell a friend tell a friend about uncle francis's wine cellar spread the word among the family please and get us some more listens because it's not for us 
It's for Francis. It's for the Uncle Francis. Yeah, Brian, Brian, tell an enemy. Tell an enemy oh, yeah. about the show. <laughs> yeah, you know what the colonel, you know, the colonel, the snowman himself, the, the you know, the greatest huckster that ever lived, you know. We sell the I love Elvis pin, but we also sell I hate Elvis. We make them both ways. <laughs> I hope there's no I hate Francis pins out there. I mean, if you're a Francis hater, please, please, we'll argue with you on social media. I am at oh my Rodriguez on Twitter. Mike, you're at the Mikester everywhere, and we of course have an Instagram for the show, Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. We're likely getting a Twitter, I think. So hit us up there. Complain right, about hold on. Uncle Francis. Can I just can I just say I love how you said like we're, we might be getting a Twitter, like someone's gonna like agree to give us a Twitter for this. Like it's just <laughs> if I get around to it, okay? If I yes, get around I know, it. but it's just I like. You know, here we're way more relaxed and behind the scenes on this than any other show we do together or alone. But, like, I just thought that was a very funny way of putting it. It just seemed like, you know, we're not in control of this. That, like, there's a higher up who's like, okay, now you guys have had enough episodes, you get a Twitter. Well, if you listen to my other show, High School Slumber Party, that's how it works on there. We have superintendents and, and, and other kinds of godfathers and principals and... and there's a whole universe there. Yeah, Not as a, much... yeah, there's a whole cast of characters. It's a whole BCU, Brian Cinematic <laughs> Universe. Yeah, here in the wine cellar, you're right. It's just a bottle of wine. We're just chilling and talking about the films of one of the greatest directors of all yes. time. And, and I would say the curtain is pulled back the most on us as well as people. Like, we're just shooting the shit as opposed to, like, at least me, anyway, on those other shows where I'm trying to be kind of academic to some degree. Because at least so far, it's pretty... It's not hard to be academic because there's a lot of academia and knowledge on these Francis films, but it's just different because they're so good and so far, you know, and, and especially, again, we just covered The Godfather and it took us three parts and we're just kind of reacting by the gut. And it's also... If you're tuning in to these shows, I assume you know a little bit about The Godfather. I feel like it might get more academic on some of the weirder Francis films, right? Like some of the earlier ones, we might need to do a different kind of research on those. And when we get into the other cuts, because remember, this is a cut-by-cut show, and Francis has so many cuts of so many things, I think there might be a little bit of, of an academic lens there because we're comparing and contrasting. But Good call, good call. On the first runs... We're just having fun. And you could tell. Trust yeah. me, on this episode, yeah. <laughs> you could tell. We are having a lot of fun. Here, here. Here, here. Before we get into the episode, though, uh, we need music for this. I don't know what it is, but... Megalopolis update. <laughs> what the fuck was that? I don't know. I love that. I think we should use that, though. Like, <laughs> cut that, save it as a file, and that is the Megalopolis update jingle. No, no, I, we're going to commission it. It's going to be like a huge fanfare. It's going to take three minutes long. But Megalopolis, if you're not familiar, is Francis Ford Coppola's dream project. It is something he's been working on for a while, and the wheels have been in motion. There have been casting rumors. There have been a lot of rumors around this film. And I'm not just saying recently. For years. But, Mike. Yes. Early in October. I believe it was Deadline. Yeah, Deadline got an exclusive. Exclusive quotes from Francis. Exclusive 
sneak peek on the film. We have the official cast announced. Wow. And when they're starting filming, so. Okay, so we would read the cast list, but it, there'll be a whole other episode you know, by, the, by the end of that. Well, here's who was announced in this article. It's only eight people, really, so. Oh, okay, so primary cast, like the leads. Yeah, so some of these people are like, oh, her? Like, I don't mean in a negative way, but Chloe Fineman from SNL is one of the main stars. Oh, Isabel Kuzman. She was in uh, Licorice Pizza. Uh, D.B. Yep. Sweeney. Dustin okay. Hoffman was the big surprise. Dustin Hoffman. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Haven't seen him for a minute. So Shia was confirmed. Wow, Shia. James Remar officially Whoa. confirmed. I think he was in... I think he was previously... All right, we'll get there. All right. <laughs> I was trying to think... What, I think he was previously worked with Francis, but I, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't remember like where. Did. It feels like that makes sense, though. It's Catherine Hunter and Grace Vanderwall, all confirmed. So this is fun. And it, it's going to start filming in Georgia this fall. We're in the fall, so maybe it started filming today. Who knows? But I am so excited for this. I don't really know Catherine Hunter that well, I don't think... I'm looking up some of her work. Yeah, and no, I'm not that familiar. Oh, she was, I've seen, I mean, I saw Orlando forever ago. That's great, till the movie. And then who was the last person that you mentioned? Uh, Grace Vanderwall. All right, I'm going to look her up. And I don't know her. She's the singer? Is she a singer? Oh, that's how Grace I know Van- her. I'm like, I know her from what? Yeah, she's a, she's a singer. I actually like her music a lot. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm unfamiliar. She's in stuff, and she's a singer. Cool. All right. Well, I'm glad. It's good that it's not just populated by you know people you recognize. I I don't always love that when that goes down. So that's how I know Grace Vanderwall. I I am like I have her music. I like her songs, but she was in this Disney film called Star Girl, um, a Disney yeah. Plus film. So that's where she first came on my radar through High School Slumber Party. So ah, uh, okay. Oh, that's cool that she's in this film. So this is going to take a little long because this quote is a little long, and I don't want to spoil this article, read the article, but I need to read this Francis quote because you and I, <laughs> okay, you and I in this wine cellar together, Mike, you're going to be salivating when I read this. Oh, I can't wait. This, this is going to make your evening. This is a direct quote from Francis. What's the worst that can happen to me? I'm going to die and be broke? I'm not going to be broke. My kids are all successful. They're going to have this beautiful place. <laughs> well, you're going to have to give me some room for laughing. And like that, that right there could have been the line. And like, I'm never going to be broke. My kids are all successful. Sorry, Great. Sophia and Roman. Yeah, yeah. I'm confident that if you make a film that people can keep getting something out of for 10, 20 or more years, you will not lose money. I look at my movies. They're all being looked at 50 years later. The Outsiders, Dracula, they're all seen. My films, the more weird they are, the longer they seem to last. I don't even know why. Well, well, Uncle Francis, we're part of that conversation. But it continues, Mike. It Definitely. Oh, wait. Oh, okay. Because those aren't even like his weirdest movies. <laughs> no, I know. What would make me really happy? It's not winning a lot of Oscars because I already have a lot. And maybe more than I deserve. <laughs> I wait. Can I? I need to interject and just say I love when like successful old people are at the end and they just are looking back and don't give a shit. Like I feel like John Carpenter's been doing this lately too. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's what I mean. We're gonna get something awesome here. So okay, let me continue. And it's not that I make a lot of money. 
Although I think over time it will make a lot of money because anything that people keep looking at and, and finding new things, that makes money. So somewhere down the line, way after I'm gone, all I want is for them to discuss Megalopolis. And is the society we're living in the only one available to us? How can we make it better? Education? Mental health? What the movie really is proposing is that the utopia is not a place. It's how... Sorry, this is awesome. It's how can we make everything better? Every year, come up with two, three, four ideas that make it better. I would be smiling in, in my grave if I thought that something like that happened because people talk about what movies really mean if you give them something. If you encourage people to discuss marriage and education and health and justice and opportunities and freedom and all these wonderful things that human beings have conceived of and ask the question, how can we make it even better? That would be great because I bet they would make it better if they had that conversation. And that's what he wants Megalopolis to do for humanity. Wow. This is he's trying to save the world with this film. <laughs> I mean, that's the power of cinema, right? Like that's what him and his crew have always believed, you know, like they could change the world that way and I mean, that's what great art has always done throughout history and you know, you could say what you want about him, he has created great art in the medium of cinema and so there's no reason to believe he can't do it one more time. You know, and I'm psyched. It sounds like he's in a good frame of mind to be fully expressive and 100% like his vision. So this is very exciting. I'm even, I'm so much more excited right now. I'm like oh, inspired yeah. by that quote. Like I want to, oh, yeah. like the movie, like think of it this way, bro. Like the movie hasn't even been made and people are talking about it, right? Like it's already doing what he wants it to do. And it's not even a movie yet like crazy insane insane amazing i cannot wait for this one uh, obviously you can't either we'll cover it here on uncle francis's wine cellar we'll be there opening night and we'll see what it is <laughs> and maybe we won't even understand it the first time we watch it right maybe it'll take us 20 years 30 years 40 years like he says who knows some of, some, some of my favorite movies are like that like i keep going back to brazil because like for some reason it's like why do i love this movie like it scares me it challenges me like it it makes me laugh like it's just like you know there's just movies like that like you don't have to understand your favorite film but like it's all about you know revisiting it and getting something out of it and you know yeah that's awesome i can't wait to hopefully have another one of those movies oh yeah i can't wait either and he mentioned Bram Stoker's Dracula in this article. So I was like, that's <laughs> awesome. And you know what? It's it maybe it's one of those things like they say like when you buy a red car, for example, you start seeing red cars everywhere. But in the last couple of weeks, I've heard more and more people talk about this movie. I've heard it just like in passing conversation. I know it's October, I know it's Halloween, and that's a yeah, big yeah. reason for it, but but it, it's cool that it's still in the public conscious, still in the dialogue, because I think when you say Coppola to someone, they think The Godfather, they think Apocalypse Now. They don't necessarily think Dracula, but this this film is a worthy a worthy inclusion in, in the Dracula adaptations, and I think we uh, explain why nicely in this episode today. Absolutely. Most definitely. So let's kick it to this episode. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. I don't know. Here's myself, Mike Manzi. <laughs> And Dan Cologne, concluding our talk on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Lucy! Lucy! 
come to me Things you think we really need to talk about today on Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar uh, regarding this film, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, well, I mean, the opening is very shocking, where we see uh, Vlad basically going to war, you know, under the House of Dragons. Very Game of Thrones, right? House of Dragons. Um, <laughs> and he goes out to war, and this is a really... I like... I like this story. I'm not sure if I'm sold on how he becomes vampire, but I like the concept that, like, you know, his enemies shoot an arrow into the keep and his Mina reads that he has died in battle. So she throws herself, you know, into the into the falls, she and into the waterfalls and stuff. And he comes back and finds out she's dead and it was and lied to and he renounces God and he stabs the giant crucifix and he drinks the, the blood and apparently that's how he becomes a vampire I don't know if I love that but I love I love that heartbreaking story part of it I love you know it's almost Shakespeare or something yeah no I actually like that I love the intro I love the tie-in to the real history here like with the Ottomans and stuff like I thought that was like super cool how about you, how about you, Dan? Anything early on that really stuck out to you before we kind of get into like the meat of the story? Yeah, I mean, minus Keanu's performance, we don't have to dive back into that. But like the whole. By the way, by the way, my my, uh, my wife is sitting next to me, and she was like, "Is this movie really bad, or what's going on with Keanu?" I'm like, "I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain later." So, so so sorry, you reminded me, because I continue, Dan. Just <laughs> just just show her the movie. <laughs> See how far she gets. <laughs> so sorry, Dan. Continue. So I, I really like stylistically, visually, how how that whole sequence with Jonathan Harker at Castle Dracula works. A lot of the um, in-camera effect. I mean, just the simple uh, shadows on the walls. You oh. know, like one of my favorite one of my favorites is when like they're standing at the at the dinner table. I think it is, or at a desk, and like. Dracula's doing one thing, but then his shadow reaches for Jonathan uh, in the background. So I, I love uh, the way that Coppola was visually able to tell us a lot of stuff yeah. uh, in those sequences. Yeah, Dan, so Coppola said like one of the vampire rules that he wanted to add to the lore of vampires that if you are in the presence of a vampire, that the rules of physics do right. not necessarily apply. So that like yeah. a shadow could behave based on emotion rather than what the actual physical person was doing. And I'm like, that's a really cool rule. Oh, I love that. That's a great explanation. That means he has such a firm grasp of the concept that he's starting to kind of like add his own contributions. And that's a great one. Cause I always love that shadow play. You know, it's very much like uh, watching like a Broadway show or something you would see on that or something. So like, I love that inclusion. 
Yeah, definitely that. And, and there's the, um, the scene where Jonathan is shaving and Dracula enters the room and it's very obvious. He's not walking into the room. He's like gliding in. Ooh, yeah. Like, like you said that the rules of physics don't really apply at Castle oh, Dracula. Yeah, yeah. That, that starts almost a little earlier. I was sort of very taken aback by one scene when the dark rider comes to pick him up in the carriage and he turns oh, around yeah. and it's shot like not in total slow motion, but it almost looks like the horse and carriage are like on a track. They're not because the horse is, is galloping, but it has that same sort of glide to it. And then Dracula does it more later when he catches the brides eating Keanu and he just kind of like glides into the room all pissed off and everything. Yeah. Very, very awesome visual. It's amazing too that like it's not one of these films that will like look I you you know you guys know horror more than me but Mike you've shown me a lot of horror films that it'll be 40 minutes before we like really maybe 30 minutes like where we've really realized like the potential of what's about to come this is something that like sets the tone right away with that scene with like Dracula's brides and again nipples bleeding and all that like oh fuck this is what we're getting into now and i i love that i'd rather have that like i'd rather i love a slow build don't get me wrong but i also like uh let's set the tone let's then bring it back and let's wait for this to happen kind of again later in the film. Well, I almost feel like he sets the tone and he ramps it up or, or he at least keeps the pace to the point where like every 15 minutes or so, there's going to be a fucked up sequence with Dracula, you know, like the, the, the ship crossing the ocean and then him attacking Lucy and, and then, you know, going to watch a train arriving at the station and then like you know at the little cinema and in the absence like i feel like every couple of sequences we get something that's just like wow he's he's keeping us in it you know he's reminding us that this is like insanity at some point once we get to like sort of i mean i know we see we know at the beginning but once we get into that world the outfits are amazing like once Dracula is sort of in London, by the way, Keanu, what, is he a real estate agent in this movie? Is that what yes. the character is? <laughs> is this basically Dracula in general, not just this film, the greatest real estate agent tale ever? Like, is there another depiction of a real estate Ooh. agent that's like cooler than than this or like more interesting than this? I'm like, I don't read a lot of stuff about real estate agents being one of the, like the main characters, so it's kind of interesting. Well. Glen Gary, Glenn Ross would be at the top of my list. Oh, well, no, true. actually, that's more. They're not real estate agents, I guess. They're more real estate salesmen. What's, what's the difference? Like brokers. I think they're brokers. Like brokers yeah, I don't know. Like, it's in the vein of that. Sure, true. I just covered uh, Boiler Room on Too Fast Too Forever. So a oh, lot boy. of Glen Gary, Glenn Ross references on that. They're selling land, not, not homes. Yeah, it's more like speculating, whatever. But regardless, right? Like. I got friends who are real estate agents. I'm sure you guys know real estate agents as well. You know, everyone knows someone who's in the profession or has worked with someone in the profession. You don't think like, hey, have you seen Dracula? That's you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's something that I have read in my notes that I I wanted to share. But once we get to, like, Dracula going to London and, you know, interacting with Winona, explain this to me. Is she... Like, his wife reincarnated? Does she remind him of his wife? Like, what is the actual explanation of this? Do you want to go first, Dan? <laughs> no, go, go ahead, Mike. I, I'm, I'm just going to take take it from what the movie is trying to tell us. 
because this is something that is actually more developed in the original Mummy movie, you know, and uh, Dan and I talked about it on the show as like Dracula and the Mummy. The Mummy is sort of a based off of the Dracula screenplay in a lot of ways, but it adds to it. And then later on, they've taken elements of that and incorporated it into back into Dracula. And it seems like one of those is the idea of this love across an ocean of time okay is that like he once had a betrothed and she died and um you know hundreds of years later when he reemerges, he finds um someone with the same spirit or a kindred soul or at least a very similar look-alike right and that his whole sort of uh passion is that this is her this is the same woman reincarnated and i will remind her of that and we will be together forever now whether or not that's ever the truth is i would like to believe yes because we're dealing with the supernatural and the movie by the end certainly leads me to believe that yeah i think this is the spirit of uh his long lost love uh reincarnated into her or else i don't think her sense memory would have kicked in so hard towards the end of the movie uh i don't I don't necessarily buy that she's the reincarnation of of his wife. I don't know. It's 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 tough. You could read it both ways. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a solid opinion on it one way or the other. I guess. Uh, I think that. Well, you know what? Maybe she is the one thing that I really don't like about this movie. Because uh, people tend to like it more than I do. And I realized that one of the biggest turnoffs for me is towards the end of the movie when she realizes that he's been responsible for everything that's been going on, that he is a vampire, he murdered Lucy and everything else. And she still decides that she loves him and wants to be with him. And I thought, who would do that? You know what I mean? This isn't Dracula using his like, influence to keep her on his side he's he's being very uh uh forthright with her about everything uh, he's becoming very vulnerable in that moment but you know like who in their right mind would say no i still love you anyway make me a vampire you know what i mean like it just <laughs> it never made sense to me so i think the only way maybe for it to make sense is if she is the reincarnated uh his reincarnated wife but then she never really has that moment where she becomes that version of herself mm. she's just always Mina Harker. So it gets a little sloppy in that regard, I think. Yeah, it always, even like, you know, other films that, uh, Dracula films that I watched, it's always confused me a bit. That's sort of why, like I said, like a lot of Dracula films, again, it sounds condescending, but I don't mean it that way, so don't get offended, but have sort of been like Halloween party background films to me. Like, I haven't been able to connect, to connect certain dots previously on them. And even this one, when I'm, like, watching academically, I'm like, why is she doing that, you know? However, however, her outfits, like, Winona Ryder's outfits, on point. Like, that green number she's wearing. Oh, yeah. When, when, like, uh, when, like, steampunk Dracula meets her and they're just, like, <laughs> just, like ch- chatting it up. I'm like, the outfit game is on point point right yeah. now that i'm like yeah. into whatever is going on here because of like what they're wearing like i'm glad it got the oscar for this because i i think it's so good vera west would be proud right dan yes 100 <laughs> yeah and they sort of avoid that issue entirely in the 31 dracula mina is not 
there, I don't, there, there's no indication that she is his reincarnated wife. Like they don't really get into Dracula's backstory. One day he appears in, in London and he sees her and becomes obsessed with her. But uh, there's no blatant uh, yeah. uh, reason for that. She's just the target, you know? Yeah. I think I think it also worked better overall in The Mummy because that did deal with reincarnation and souls. And yeah, that's their religion. A mummy. In Egypt, yeah. A mummy. That's the whole point of it, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. And they had the well of souls and all of that. And yeah, so like to retrieve a lost soul was all part of the plan in The Mummy. So it is a little wonky i will go with that but i like it because it adds sort of more supernatural stuff to it if it is true you know if it is part of the game if you do want to play it that way i think it will work it's not 100 percent successful ever really i guess but it's interesting so it's something that i'm glad is in play during the movie why do you think the Dracula story is so timeless, even today in 2022? You can walk to anybody, even a kid, and be like, who's Dr- Dracula? And they would give you some version of things. Like, why do you think it's so impactful to people? Uh, probably because it's, like, basically the first vampire story or, like, the first widely known you know, highly detailed. And also, I think the book might have gotten its own reputation based on the way it was written. It's not a conventional novel. It's like a it's like a group of correspondences put together as like a dossier almost. Um, from what I understand, haven't read it yet. But I, yeah, I think those are two parts of the answer there, possibly. And also, uh, I think just general name recognition. Dracula is a specific vampire. So if you title your movie dracula people are going yeah. to see it um, yeah. as opposed to <laughs> making another vampire movie about somebody else because like if you if you watch enough vampire movies you you see a lot of similar themes across all of them you know uh they usually look like a, a human being sometimes they move next door to you you know it's a vampire but nobody else believes you you know what i mean like yeah. i've seen variations on that across all vampire movies and so I think with Dracula specifically, I don't know that it's the story like Bram Stoker's novel that necessarily endures, but Dracula as a character, because mm. as Mike and I have seen, we've watched five movies where Dracula is a main character. And then over the years since the thirties and forties, we've gotten a lot of like uh, Dracula movies. Again, Hammer made their own, a bunch of Hammer uh there's a, there's a bunch of Hammer Dracula movies. There's a movie where Dracula's walking around in the 70s, and there's like hippies and shit. Yeah, there's Blackula, you know? Those are great movies. So There's I- Blackula, <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, I think really uh, maybe it's as simple as people know who Dracula is. Because Dracula can be anything. I don't think that, and that's the other thing. I don't think Dracula is consistent from iteration to iteration. He changes based on who plays him. So you can call somebody Dracula, and people are going to be interested. It's interesting because the Dracula legend is almost like like it, a King Arthur, Artur, you know, Arthurian legend, right? Like you can change it depending on what movie you do. There's some consistencies, but there's like room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like to mm-hmm. me, that's the greatest like honor a character could ever get. The fact that like you could make a thousand remakes to to the day the earth dies because of global warming or whatever, right? Like you can make a Dracula movie every year if you wanted to. And (laughs) until the sun never sets, (laughs) (laughs) like there should be like a hall of fame for 
literary characters that get to that level yeah. that are just like timeless enough that you could remake it every single year if you wanted to. I think I think Dan and I have gotten into that on the show about a lot of those monsters in Dracula, and you know I think a good example in our modern age is Batman, right? Like, look at Batman, like, great like, example. Yeah, yeah. So it's like on that sort of level, and look at Batman, like, and he's a superhero, and those are sort of our new quote unquote our new gods in literature, as they say, you know. So it's like they are just reinterpreted versions of like you know the flash is mercury and so on and so forth like it just aquaman is poseidon or you know so it's all working on that already creatively like that's i feel like what good storytelling and art and things are doing right like i don't know where dracula came from right but i can tell when something comes from dracula now you know that kind of thing like not sure where he began, but like I, I know, you know, going forward, I can see him in stuff now. Even in Batman, he's even there, you know. Like, I see him in Batman. <laughs> you know, like that's a good example. I hope that in two hundred years, whatever medium is popular at that time, maybe we all live in the metaverse. Maybe we're still alive <laughs> in, in, in computer hard drives, and we're still doing podcasts. Who knows? But I hope that people are like. Wow, Francis Ford Coppola tackled the Dracula legend at some point? Let me watch this film. That's like a cool thing about it. Like one of the greatest filmmakers of all time tackled one of the greatest legends of all time. And like that's my biggest takeaway. Like I love that those two worlds collided, honestly. Yeah. Well, honestly, like if Spielberg hadn't made Jaws, I'd be upset he hadn't done Dracula. You know, like it's that kind of... Like, he's already kind of made his mark, so I'm not expecting another horror film from Spielberg. But, like, he's the only other guy's version I kind of am interested in seeing. Maybe Guillermo, but, like, I would love to see Spielberg tackle horror these days. But Coppola, yeah, it's great. Like, I, you know, from what you just said, I picture, like, the kids in Ready Player One discovering this someday. Right? It's like that <laughs> kind of oddity. <laughs> it's like Apocalypse Now and The Godfather... But Dracula? Let's like ping pong between favorite scenes, moments that we haven't talked about a reference that that we should oh, talk about yeah. to, to do justice to the Coppola fans out there who love and watch this movie. So, um, yeah. Any other scenes before before we get to like the, the ending and stuff? Any other scenes that really stick out to you guys? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kick this one off. Um, so this, this movie has one of my favorite vampire abilities in it or at least my favorite depiction of that vampire vampire ability something i've never seen before and i've never really seen anything better it's it's towards the end uh when the the posse is coming after dracula before they head back into europe when he's like in that sort of animalistic beast form and they back him into like a doorway into that darkness and they hold the lantern up and he morphs in the same shot he morphs from his physical state into like a big swarm of rats all in one shot. I thought that was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen a vampire do. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe it's more so just the, the shot itself, how they managed to accomplish that. Cause vampires can turn into all kinds of things, a mist, which he does in this, but seeing that happen all in one, one go was so fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think about it every single time I think about like, cool vampire shit it's awesome as like eyes are glowing red too as he backs yeah like 
into the back of like the closet or whatever and then yeah i don't know how they pulled that off but that was an amazing effect he just drops into all those rats it's just oh my god what Oof. an awesome thing and i love the way he looks in like the giant bat form you know um like mm-hmm. he turns into a werewolf he turns into mist he turns into a bunch of rats there's that great shot where he's it's like the Nosferatu shot where he wakes up as an old man with the gold gown on. It looks very much like that painting, Brian. And he wakes up in his crypt. And then later, as Axel Rose, he like bursts out of his coffin as like a young man and everything. Like very cool imagery of Drac. That shot was actually based on this painting. Coppola said, literally looked at this painting and said, I want to recreate that in this shot. I don't know wow. why he decided to do that with the, with the Klimt there. But he was like, I want to do that. So you're spot on uh, that way. I, I was thinking this, right? Like, you know, we cover some long Coppola films. And two hours and seven minutes isn't anything to sneeze about. But he packs a lot in in a two-hour runtime. and In terms of a lot of the lore and a lot of just everything in general. Like, I was surprised. Again, you get, like, werewolfness at certain times. And just, uh, like, as you said, and just a lot of the legend. The, the, the Nosferatu term and just the whole uh, Vlad the Impaler, that history in this two-hour span. I'm, I, I'm kind of impressed. Yeah, I'm very impressed. I think it's a great use of voiceover, too. Like, that's a very tricky thing to do in movies in general. And, like, I guess from the source material, you know, he's like, well, we have these letters. Let's read them. Let's actually do that. Like, let's get some of that uh, voice on the screen. And that was interesting. You even see the letters superimposed over some of the screen at times too which is really great and you know not just with what he's saying but what you're seeing he's telling so much story with the surroundings like one of my favorite details is dracula's castle itself is dracula sitting on a throne i don't know if you ever see that but the castle is in the shape of a throne and you can almost make out somebody sitting on top of it and i just think like that is just such a killer detail like, it works so well. Yeah, I, I love that aspect of it. I love, again, also, like, the depictions of Transylvania, like, as, like, a history nerd, which I am, and just uh, also just, like, a geography nerd. I don't. I haven't seen a lot of Dracula films that are like, oh, it's Romania, it's located here, it's located there, it's between this river on here. I'm like, whoa. They break out the maps. Yeah, you break out the maps, and I, I just really, really enjoy that um any other scenes you guys want to talk about before the ending or whatever maybe the lucy scene real quick when she's in her crypt and they have the crying baby i i uh i heard that that baby was really crying because of the way she looked and the way that everything was dressed and all that so i don't you know real baby (laughs) in that scene probably that's scary for a baby that's scary for me 43 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah honestly and i mentioned this before all the lucy stuff to me is amazing i love how she's like seduces people like slowly and these like idiot dudes would be like yeah i'll kiss you and she's like about to bite them whatever like i, I love the depiction of like that american dude in this I-, I don't remember his name but like quincy quincy, the texan. quincy. yeah the quincy the texan He's so stereotypically American that I'm surprised that, like, an American made this film. And I love it. Uh, (laughs) But just, like, her drawing, like, the doctor in and him in. What she becomes. Oh, God. And I'll say it again. People are going to think I'm crazy. The white outfit she ends up in in that scene is just, like, chef's kiss. 
By the way, the beheadings in this film, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So many decapitations. <laughs> yeah, I love Anthony Hopkins uh, just walking toward like the cliffside with the three wives' uh, heads like all in just his hand. He just chucks them off the edge. <laughs> like he looks like such a he looks such a badass with just three heads in his hand. There's something so badass about being clinical. Right? <laughs> this is what we got to do. Whatever. Van Helsing in this is depicted so scientifically, right? Like he knows the way to solve this essential disease. And he's going to do whatever it takes to do that. And if you got to chop off some heads, you got to chop off some heads. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's just like, you know, gangrene, right? Like off with the fingers or the toes or whatever. They got to go. They got to go. This might seem weird, but one of my all-time favorite parts of this movie, and I'm so happy it's in this movie, and I kind of referenced it earlier. I don't know if anyone picked up on it, but like... When he's walking around with Mina, they go to the Cinematheque, like a very early version of movies are playing. So Coppola to be like, early cinema, let me show it in my yeah, film. Yeah, well, they watch the first fucking movie. They watch the train <laughs> arriving at a station. You know, the movie people watched and ran out of the tent because a train. they thought a train was coming at them. Like, that movie is in this movie, and I love that about this movie, is that they went on a date to the movies. <laughs> I love that. That was in my notes. These are the things that I bolded in my notes. The blood transfusion scene, I think, was so awesome. Like, we have to save her. You're the fiancé. We need some blood. Sit down. Let's get it and put it in her right now. Look, I was grossed out. I hate needles. I hate blood. I thought that was so cool. Right? Like, I, I, I wanted to look away, but I couldn't look away. That was on my list. Yeah, Mike, Mike and I have gotten our fill of blood yeah. transfusions on the monsters that made us. I feel like every other movie has one at this point. <laughs> For you guys. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just finished editing the House of Dracula episode, and in it, like, Dracula's getting blood transfusions. I was like, oh, shit, the doctor's going to turn into Dr. Jekyll, Dan. He's going to get the, like, Mr. <laughs> Hyde disease from being half vampire here. <laughs> uh, the other thing I had bolded in my notes, and it's a sort of a funny Coppola story, um, when uh, there's the wedding, well, the wedding that turns into like sort of, it's like an orthodox wedding that they depict. Yeah, that's um, Jonathan and Mina yes. in Romania. So, Cop yeah, in Romania, Coppola literally booked an orthodox wedding and didn't like check out, like he just is like, oh, marry these people. And they were legally married in the orthodox church. They, they they didn't sign like the official documents to be state married, but according Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves are actually married in the Orthodox Church, and they still will refer to themselves as husband and wife, like apparently in text messages because of this scene. Because Coppola was like, <laughs> oh, apparently Coppola was like, oh fuck, was that like real? Because that was an actual Orth Greek Orthodox priest that like did the ceremony again like i said they didn't sign that paperwork they didn't make official dan you're officially it you know you got to like put that paperwork through, right? like <laughs> yeah 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 so that hey, the eyes of gods the eye the, the eyes of god though the eyes of greek right. yeah the in the eyes of greek jesus their husband and wife in the eyes of zeus they are <laughs> there's the thunderbolt right the, the the church would recognize them as as married but the the st the state would not <laughs> yeah so i thought that was really really funny and like this is i was reading like a 
at the oldest, it was a 2020 interview with Renona, Winona Ryder about this. And she was like, yeah, we still call each other husband and wife because we were legally married in this church. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> Love it. That's really cool, actually. <laughs> what other scenes do you guys want to talk about uh, before the ending? Anything else really well, struck is you? There anything, is there anything that said that... Uh that Tom Waits actually ate some bugs in this movie because he eats a lot of bugs as a character and the asylum in general is just it's one of the few times I'm watching a movie and I feel like I can smell the, the <laughs> see you know like I it's like something I always forget about watching like prison films I'm watching them and halfway through I'm like I bet it smells terrible in there but like as soon as we hit the asylum it's like woof I feel like it's like a waft in the room like 5D or something like and and I love how it's just easier for the people working there to wear cages around their head than it is to restrain the inmates, you know, because of how many times they try and bite you. And it's like, it's just insane. It is insane. It's a, it's a madhouse. I'm going to say I'd be very disappointed if we made it through this whole episode and didn't talk about the cages on those guards' heads. Like the first time I ever saw that, whenever I bought this DVD, it was probably like in college or post-college. I had never seen anything like that, and I really didn't know what to make of it. You know, <laughs> and you're like, "Is that really necessary?" And then Tom Waits like jumps on the guy's neck, and you're like, "Oh, it is very necessary, actually." Like that makes sense. Okay. This movie to me is proof that like if you've made some of the greatest films of all time, and you just really put your mind to it and want to make a movie that both marries the weird shit you're into and can be popular and cool. You can do it if you want to, right? Like, and that—that's something that I yeah. think Coppola achieved. Yes, it's the cast that makes it cool, and yes, at times sometimes the movie is a shit show, but it's also visually very striking. And it's—I'll be honest, Mike. Sometimes you recommend horror films that I'm like, oh, I get it, and I'm into it, but I got to put on like my weirdo cap to really, really, really enjoy it, right? Yeah. I don't think this is one of them, right? Like, I think this movie is weird and sometimes a little bit incoherent but i think most people watching could get what's going on from home to back yes they might have questions about the minutiae but it's not like it doesn't lose me anywhere completely where i'm like what is going on i don't know where i am right like i'm still following the story i don't know if that's more bram stoker or coppola but i never was lost on this movie i had questions but i never was like why am i here sure but I, i feel like um you know, if, if the style doesn't work for somebody, I think they're inherently just not going to like it. You know what I mean? Like you have that to enjoy be. the style true, true. to enjoy everything else because everything else is, is, you know, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah. I think that the only, the only way if someone's not going to like this is if the style just doesn't work for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think overall, like it's a very basic story what's going on here and i don't think it's like wholly that original either you know like you've seen stuff like this before even if you haven't seen it where it's like a love triangle basically you know two dudes in love with the same woman and it's like one's real strong and one's kind of a nerd and it's like you know who's gonna get the girl in the end right it's kind of that's it really uh so it all depends on like you know how you pull it off and and as regarding the style it's like i think initially this isn't everybody's cup of tea however more and more as the days go on and as we get further away from this type of filmmaking i think it's be, be gonna become like i think people will accept it more and stick with it nowadays longer than in 1993 where 
they probably wanted more action, like Terminator action shit going on, or we're expecting it to be less kind of freaky, dreamy kind of stuff. But now I think the audiences, maybe a bit more sophisticated, would be down with the simplicity of the story and the basic nature of the effects and all that to kind of bring this sort of uh, curiosity, you know, and like stick with it. And as, as I said, it might not be their style originally. I have a feeling it'll draw people in more, though, than it used to. So that's my hope for the movie. Something else just occurred to me because you, you mentioned, you know, it, there's not a lot of uh, action in this where there might otherwise have been at this time uh, with a different movie. Um, I just realized that it was what... Uh, Six years prior, I think that Andrew Lloyd Webber brought Phantom of the Opera oh. to Broadway, mm. and and like and like sort of recreated or reimagined this monster as like a romantic antihero kind of. Yeah, yeah. And now suddenly everyone's like, "Oh, this love story in Phantom of the Opera," and I'm like, "Have you seen Phantom of the Opera?" <laughs> um, and so. <laughs> Suddenly, suddenly we're turning these monstrous characters into romantic leads. And so people are, are into that now. And so it makes sense to me that Francis Ford Coppola would reinvent Dracula as this romantic character less than a decade after after Phantom yeah. uh, launched on Broadway. And just closing Phantom on that same run these Oof. days. So that was the most successful run on Broadway history. Um of the original Universal Monsters, I don't know why I'm asking this, but I've had most of this bottle of wine. I have to. <laughs> Who's the hottest? Who's the thirst trap of those original Universal oh, Monsters? Larry Talbot. Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, <laughs> is my number one you answer. Dude, he is a chick magnet, and I don't know why. I think he lets off a certain type of pheromone. I was just getting <laughs> into this in the last episode, right, Dan? Like, I can't help yeah. it. He is like, there's something he's so emo. Women just need to fix him. They can't help it. They love this guy. And even if he ignores you, he, they're just going to love him more. Like, that is definitely my pick as the Wolfman. <laughs> yeah, I think in, in terms of like, uh, like in story, Larry Talbot is the one all the women flock to for whatever reason. Uh, but if I'm, if I'm choosing based on my own tastes and preferences, um, I'm probably gonna go Bella Lugosi. Classic. Because he was a very ha- he was a very handsome man. Yeah. In ways Karloff wasn't. You know, Karloff wasn't traditionally handsome, which is why he was so great at being buried under prosthetic and makeup and all that. You know, he could perform through all that. But Lugosi just had this this very handsome way about him, and uh, he'd be my pick. Yeah. Even even Lon Chaney Jr. wasn't necessarily like that. He was kind of like average, like. I would say looking like normal guy, like not strikingly handsome or anything, but Bella, when you see him, it's just like, whoa, like he's kind of like, I would say he's hot. You know what I mean? Like you look at him, he's like, wow, he's pretty hot. Like what, what is that guy? You walk into a bar with your girlfriend, right? And <laughs> who are you more worried about stealing your girl, Lon Chaney Sr. or Lon Chaney Jr.? I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think uh, you go first, Dan. I'm going to say Lon Chaney Sr. Because wow. Lon Chaney Jr. was a wicked alcoholic. And I can't see I can't see my girlfriend being attracted to that type of person. Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm gonna have to go with the same answer. Probably, yeah. 
if I had to pick one. For our film, Bram Stoker's Dracula, did you like the ending? Did you like where we ended up? Like, they're back in Transylvania, and Van Helsing's like, yeah, she's going to take care of the deed right here, and Keanu, whatever, go fuck yourself. Um, and, and then essentially we get like that, uh, I don't know what you want to call this ending thing, but like, you know, the de- decapitation of official Dracula here. Did you like how this film ended? Yeah, I don't I don't know. Um uh... <laughs> I'll tell you this. I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I thought I thought it was unique. You know, like I'd never seen Dracula get de- decapitated before. You know, usually he's got the stake through the heart, or he's or he's burned by the sun. You know, or someone shoves a crucifix up his ass. I don't know, but like <laughs> you shoot him with a bullet that's got like a cross like cut into it. No, <laughs> um, but I I like it. It's tragic. You know, we also talked about like sort of the poetic tragedy of some of the things that go on in House of Dracula with um, the doctor and his assistant. You know, and and not to spoil too much, but like that loving relationship has a very tragic end and there's something like that here where Mina has to pull the trigger you know it has to be her so like the deed can't be done unless it's her doing it so it's got to be for real and she really needs to mean it and everything there's something nice about that altogether and then there's something just also fucking badass about you know a woman chopping some dude's head off uh, and I'm sure there's some kind of metaphor for uh, like having an orgasm or something too in Coppola's weird perverted mind as well <laughs> I will say the first one of the first hundred DVDs I bought I bought like the Tim Burton Sleepy Hollow I always like laughed even then on the cover it just says heads will roll I'm like mm-hmm. yep low hanging fruit we get it right like <laughs> this movie has even more decapitations than that film, right? Like heads are really rolling in this one. So, so Dan, what do you think of the ending? So, I do like the uh, the like the visual poetry of Mina having to you know finish it off, you know, plunge the the knife deeper into Dracula and, and cutting his head off. I think that all makes sense. I think where I struggle. You know, I sort of talked about this before. I struggle with Mina still being in love with him, despite knowing that he's been the one responsible for killing her best friend and everything else that he's been up to. Um, I also don't necessarily love John Harker saying, uh, what does he say? Like, like our job is done here. Hers is just beginning. Like, you know, she's a vampire. <laughs> Are we just going to let her like go back in the castle? and? Yeah. Be, be a vampire? Dan, like, uh, she's going to go form the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Like, I don't, I don't get the logic of that. Why would you leave a vampire alive in this world? That, that doesn't make any sense to me. Kill but I realize both. this is. Uh, decapitate them both. I uh, know, I'm with you. I didn't understand that at all. This is this is a soap opera, so, you know, sometimes the rules don't always apply. Yeah. Logic doesn't always have to apply, but. <laughs> This but like that's that's a, that's a moment where yeah. I was like, I was like, what? No, kill her too, and then you know we're done. We can all go home. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily understand the reasoning behind it, but I do enjoy the visual of Mina having to to kill off Dracula herself. I'm sorry, but like also if like if you kill the head vampire, like she should revert. You know, in my book, like if you're changing stuff. 
either kill her or have her change back. Like that, I think would be right more satisfying than just like this movie's over, but you know, sequel. <laughs> yeah, because she's just like, oh, I'm just gonna live here and just chill. I do what I had to do, and like, whatever. I got a house now. Let's. That's a lot of cleaning up to do. <laughs> One thing I do love about like maybe the the, the back half hour of this movie, uh, it's really more than the ending, but. The, the, so the 1931 Dracula, it's, it's it's almost entirely in in London. Once well, once they move, once Dracula leaves Transylvania, the rest of the movie is all in London. The sequence where he leaves and heads back into Europe uh, after they like destroy his his uh, safe houses, like that he has all over the city. He heads back into into Europe, and then they chase him through Europe. That's from the novel. And they couldn't do it in the original oh. 31 movie because it was it was expensive, you know, like they wanted to keep it tight. They wanted to keep it kind of like a drawing room mystery sort of deal. So that movie feels very, uh, very uh, insulated in a lot of ways. It's very uh, intimate. This I, I loved that last like half hour where they're chasing him through Europe. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's sailing around Gibraltar through the Mediterranean. They're cutting across the land. And like, that was maybe one of the most exciting Dracula sequences I've seen. So I, I really liked that as a, as an element in a Dracula story. Cause it's, again, it's one of the more exciting parts of the book. And, and it's unfortunately not in that original Dracula. Honestly, movie. that's so cool that the, I didn't realize that was in the original book. I love that part of it. I love, you know, it feels so old school with that map and the way they show it in this movie. Like, I thought, honestly, I thought that was a Coppola invention. Anything else we want to say? Or should we, you know, a final final thoughts on the film? I've had a bottle of wine. I need help, Mike. You're the co-host. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think for our first go-around with Dracula, we did a pretty good job, you know. Uh, this is uh, going to be released, hopefully, like around the Halloween season in October, at least. So maybe we revisit it. Uh, I don't know that he has done another scary movie. So, I mean, well, Apocalypse Now is scary. Yeah, and there are parts of other movies that are, like The Godfather is scary and stuff, but it's not a horror but some, film. But like some like, of those modern films, like someone said I should, we should do Twixt. Is that the name of it or something like that? Betwixt or in Twixt or something. But like I say, we do this once a year. If there are no other cuts to watch, we just, you know, revisit it and uh, make it like a bonus or something. None. I mean, I'm in agreement, but none of the uh, like early Corman stuff is horror. Oh, right, Dementia Thirteen and Dementia Thirteen. Um, yeah, but... yeah. There's two cuts of that. I think he had he shot some of the Terror. Possibly that he shoot a couple scenes of that. So there's stuff. Coppola was involved in the Terror with uh, Karloff and and Nicholson. I thought so. I mean, I could be wrong about that. That might not be him. But no, um, I think you're right, Mike. Yeah. Let me see. Like, I think let's see, Coppola. I mean, like, I know I've like a lot movie. of people have shot. Like, there's a lot of directors for that movie. And, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson and Dick Miller have, like, tons of stories about shooting that with Karloff. So, I don't know. And he, he shot some other right just now. scenes and stuff, so. I know, yeah, he, he is a part of it, yeah, I'm reading it now. According to Wikipedia, uh, directed by Roger Corman, but uncredited beneath that, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, all, a couple other people, including Jack Hill, Jack Nicholson. That's cool. Oh. We'll have you on that one, Dan, because that's something I do have on our list, the terror, because like there's a, a Coppola as like Corman's fixer upper at that point is a fascinating thing that I am so excited mm-hmm. to get into. 
like Corman used to just buy shit from like the stuff I'm reading in Coppola. He used to just buy shit from like abroad and been and say to Francis, "Hey, make this into an American movie. You know, use what you want, shoot whatever else you want to like make it coherent, but let's make this an American story." And he'd be like, "Okay." He's like, honestly, he was like twenty, you know, in his early twenties, and he was just like, you know, whatever Corman would say to do, he would do, and that's a part of Coppola's like portfolio that I don't really know well. Like, Mike, a couple years ago, I, I literally asked you, who's Roger Corman and why do I keep seeing his name on things? So that's <laughs> know, how yeah. little I know about this era, and I'm so excited for this. So the fact that he's involved in that film, Dan, we'll bring you back if you're willing to come back on after this. And sure. Maybe maybe you'll you'll make yourself a drink on that one. You're a good cocktail, man. I see you on, on social media. Pour a cocktail next time for Uncle Francis when you're feeling better. Yeah, I absolutely will. It's unfortunate. I had, uh, I don't know what I had. It felt like the flu. The the, uh, like... the, the, the vampiric gene you had. Uh, hey, man. That's a good one, Brian. You're <laughs> really good drug cool. I just need nearly a full bottle to do it, so... T- typically i have something to drink because uh it, it loosens me up makes me a little more chatty so like even when we're recording monsters i'll, I'll have something uh to sip on um Maybe but yeah I, so th- you're, you're getting you're getting sober dan tonight which <laughs> doesn't happen too often very rare even even when you're in the nine to five work shift right like no it's just <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't confirm or deny that. I might have coworkers listening. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course not. But um, no, this was an absolute pleasure. Anything else you want to say in the film, or should we get to our plugs? No, I think I've said about everything that I want to say. I uh, I, I do think this is a, an admirable film. Like I said, I don't love it the way some people really seem to love it, but I respect the big swings Coppola took here, and I uh, am legitimately awestruck by a lot of the technical uh, achievements. That it contains honestly i really liked it like this is not a genre that i'm you know super comfortable with saying like what's great and what's not great but i definitely enjoyed it i enjoyed it more than i thought i would and i was happy that again i've heard such crap about 90s coppola that it's terrible i like the godfather 3 as you know mike i like this so f everyone who says that nine uh 90s coppola <laughs> sucks because the two 90s Coppola... No, I've seen three 90s Coppola films. We'll talk about that third one another time. And all three of them, I enjoyed. So, Mike, your final thoughts on this film? Yeah, definitely. I love this movie. I mean, I'd, I won't necessarily call it a masterpiece, but, you know, it's way up there for me with, you know, rewatchable, um, exciting, interesting, like, stuff I've not seen in other, any other movies. I mean, it's a Francis Ford Coppola horror movie not only that it's his version of dracula like one of the greatest you know characters in history basically (laughs) like you know no denying dracula is just like amazing as a character so like yeah i just love everything i love his vision of this i love how he wanted to sort of pay homage to the past and um all of that and you just see every ounce of his ability on display here for better or for worse and you know almost entirely for better from my opinion but like i will admit it's not a perfect film it's got its flaws you know you try and fill in some of the gaps here and there the best you can because dracula has some holes in it and i don't know like i think that might be why 
I don't have to say, again, I haven't read the book, but I'm looking forward to wondering if, like, my imagination to fill in those gaps is better than what movies have been doing for that, you know, because it seems like movies have been trying to condense, uh, rearrange, and sort of fill in certain gaps from the story along the way, and there's, you know, varying degrees of success, but ultimately as its own movie, as its own film, and as a horror film, I think I just love this one, so I always recommend it, and I think I've been watching it, like, every October for like the last four years or something. So at least since we did the Keanu club, like I've been watching it every year since Keanu club. So I like it. Mike, you got to help me with this wine thing because the next <laughs> just day, tell you, just, just, I'm telling you, I told you how to do it. I told you, this is how you do it. You hold it up. You say, Hey, look at my wine. And then you have your glass and it's got grape juice in it. And you, and you do the switcheroo. If I was home, myself it would be fine whatever like but like i'm talking and i'm listening and i'm not realizing and i'm pouring and i'm drinking and i'm pouring and i'm like oh my god the the bottle is done and it's been two hours of just me drinking this bottle of wine see brian here's what you do okay i never keep the bottle near me when i'm recording i pour like if, if i pour uh like some whiskey or some rum or whatever i'll pour like two ounces and that's got to sustain me for the whole recording. Ooh, you got to get it down to one glass, Brian. I'm not. I'm not getting up. I'm not going to stop the podcast to go pour another drink. You know, no, like, for sure. But for me, the bottle's here. I open it live, and then I'm just like, Hi. yeah. Well, th- th- there's there's the mistake. You got to not have the bottle Brian. within arm's reach, <laughs> Brian. You do realize that's <laughs> not your real dog, right? That you're holding a stuffed animal right now. Oh, I didn't even realize. But look, this is Uncle Francis Wine Cellar. We pull the vintages from the cellar in that old basement of the Cage Club Podcast Network. Thank you, Joey Lundaska, for giving us the black card to to purchase this beautiful, beautiful collection of wine we have for this podcast that just makes it all worth it. So, so, uh, Dan, thank you so much for stopping by and talking this film. We've already on air booked you for multiple <laughs> episodes so i hope you'll you know not renege on that promise and and come on um so you you are the guest today you've talked about monsters that made us if you want to promote it more this is coming out in october sure but also you have another new show that i'm really digging so far so i want to hear about both those things yeah, so uh, we've talked about the monsters that made us uh, several times tonight, um, but if you want to find us, we're at cageclub.me slash monsters. Um, just click around on the Cage Club website, you'll find us. We're on uh, Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram at the Monsters That Made Us. And uh, so my new show, uh, I started with a friend of ours, Brian, our friend Shawnee Mead. We covered on High School Slumber Party the Lost Boys together, another vampire film, which was one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. And really, again, vampire. We're, we're a vampire team already, so we've done this before. That's right. Well, it turns out that uh, Shawnee and I uh, share more than just a love of teenage vampires. We are both really big fans of Nora Ephron. And so uh, one night, while I was probably feeling about how you're feeling right now, Brian... <laughs> I uh, messaged Shawnee on Twitter. I said, hey, we should do a Nora Ephron podcast. I think that would be really fun. And then uh, months and months and months later, it's now become a reality. Uh, Shawnee uh, is leading me through the the career of uh, Nora Ephron. She has seen 
almost all of Nora's movies. She, uh, in her own words, I'm going to paraphrase, like could do a TED talk on Nora Ephron uh, <laughs> without any preparation whatsoever. And so she's like my, my Nora guru. So we're working through the movies of Nora Ephron. The show's called The Podcast Around the Corner. We're on Twitter at The Nora Podcast, and we are on uh, Instagram at The Nora Podcast, and we're also part of the Cage Club Podcast Network, so we're on uh, on the Cage Club website as well. I don't just love uh, horror movies, even though I'm frequently a horror consultant. I also love Nora Ephron movies, so I'm a man of... Uh, I wear many hats. Get, get your boy on the pod, because I want to talk Nora Ephron films as well. So Yeah, we're still in the process of figuring out how we want to do guests. We're doing our primary episodes without guests, but we want to do some bonus episodes for sure. So I will talk to Shawnee, and I'm sure she'd love to have you on too. Shawnee has been on High School Slumber Party. You've been on High School Slumber Party together. You guys have been together on High School Slumber Party. Shawnee and Mike have been on High School Slumber Party together. Every combination has been on High School Slumber Party. So uh, my other podcast, again, is High School Slumber Party. Um, check that out. We talk high school films. I also have another podcast that's pretty dormant now, unfortunately. But that's P.S. I Love Hoffman. Um, check those episodes out, too. And, Mike, I saved you for last because you have, what, I don't know how many active podcasts on this network? <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, it doesn't matter. I'm only going to talk about the ones with new episodes this, this time around, which it, there's surprisingly, there's a few of them. So... Dan and I's uh, House of Dracula episode should be out by now. Uh, my October episode of Third Time's a Charm. You were on there, Brian, as well as Austin Wolf Southern. We talked Howling 3, the marsupials. That was a blast. <laughs> That'll be out on the 3rd of October. Joey and I got together. The pod father himself. We got together uh, last weekend, recorded a couple episodes. We had the new Elvis episode for Viva Pa Vegas, Girls, Girls, Girls. Yeah, a little preview of that. Uh, It should be called Boats, Boats, Boats. That's all I have to say about that. And then we also (laughs) watched together and then recorded an episode on the new Tom Hanks film, Pinocchio. A Pinocchio. And uh, that was a tough one, so go listen to our thoughts on that. (laughs) And you'll hear why. And it's all out there. Uh, Keanu Club episode of, of Dracula. Go listen to that. Uh, cageclub.me facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on twitter and instagram so dan we end all our coppola podcasts with a certain phrase from the aforementioned and famous godfather film leave the gun take the cannoli so why don't you take it away and and end this great podcast leave the gun take the cannoli this is the end Beautiful friend This is the end My only friend